This episode is brought to you by the Jewelry Institute of America. Learn optical diamond setting and hand engraving in our new location, conveniently located in Houston, Texas. Check out our courses online at the Jewelry Institute of America. Friends, engravers, want to work on belt buckles but don't have the time, space, or ability to make your own? Well, you're in luck. J. Martin Bitten Spurs is standing by to take your order for high-quality, custom-made blank belt buckles. This is a service I've long wished for, and now it's a reality. Order your buckle today by getting in touch with J. Martin Bitten Spurs on Instagram. Tell them Wade sent you. Welcome to the Hand Engraving Podcast, the world's greatest podcast dedicated to the art and artists of hand engraving. I'm your host, Wade Oliver Wilson, Master Engraver. We're back. I missed you. Did you miss me? So far, 2023 has been uh, pretty laid back. Haven't uh, got very much accomplished and uh, had some projects that have run into some snags. And uh, so I've spent a little bit of time uh, improving my engraving. I'm teaching myself how to paint with watercolors in an effort to improve my shading and, uh, you know, just trying some things out. Speaking to you today from a rainy North Texas, uh, late January afternoon. I just got back from Las Vegas. I haven't even unpacked my suitcase yet. Uh, I had a really good time in Vegas at the uh, Firearms Engravers Guild of America's convention. Uh, I saw a lot of great people out there that uh, some people I knew, some people that I was just meeting for the first time, uh, a lot of people I only know through the podcast and from uh, and from uh, Instagram, it was great to see everybody, and we had a, a pretty darn good time, considering that most of the people that I know are not really Vegas people, but it all worked out. At the show, I was able to get a few interviews. I had actually set up the, the studio in my hotel room, but I quickly learned that people didn't want to leave the convention center to walk all the way upstairs and go to my room and record. So I ended up moving the recording equipment down to the convention hall, and you can sure enough hear it in all the interviews. So you're just going to have to uh, be patient with that. Today's interview was uh, with Mr. Brian Hockstrad. He's a very impressive person and a great engraver. I think you're going to enjoy it. In the news, since the last time we spoke, I started teaching classes on Zoom. Specifically, I'm teaching how to draw scroll design. And over Zoom, I can share my screen with you. And if you're using an iPad, you can share your screen with me and we can draw together and we can work out your problems. I'm trying to do three or four classes per week. Uh, classes are $50 per hour. And uh, you just buy as many as you want or you feel like you need. So if you're interested, you can contact me on Instagram. Just uh, jump in my DMs and we'll get it all sorted out. Like I said, today's interview was recorded in the convention hall and it was very noisy. And you will hear that noise in the recording. I tried to remove most of it, but it made the interview sound clipped. And you would have missed all of my stuttering and saying, um. So I left that all in there. 
So like I said, you're going to have to take it as it is and just let it transport you to the 2023 FIGA convention. It's a very natural conversation. However, there is a very, there is a strange jump at one point because someone stood right next to our table and was uh, yelling and screaming about hot dogs or something. And uh, I wasn't able to uh, edit that in a way which was not weird. And so there's just a gap and uh, you're just going to have to deal with that. If you can put up with that, you're in for a good interview with a great engraver. Although he wouldn't say it, Mr. Hawkstrat's engraving is on par with the very best in the whole world. His gold work and his animal illustrations are a beauty to behold. If you are not familiar with his work, I suggest that you get that way. Unless, I don't know, maybe you don't like great stuff. Anyways, as you will hear, Brian is a humble man, a real gentleman, a serious artist, and totally devoted to what he's doing. So without further ado, I give you Brian Hawkstrat, engraver. talking to the wonderfully talented Mr. Brian Hockstrat. Uh, if you haven't seen his work before, you're missing out, uh, but chances are you have seen his work. Uh, I would, I don't know that he'd agree, but I, his work is known for a lot of gold inlay and excellent uh, animal scenes. Uh, he works on guns and knives. What else do you work on, Brian? Uh, that's about it. I, uh, once in a while I get some time and I'll build a bit, a bit or a pair of spurs, but uh, mostly I'm yeah, just doing commissions on guns and knives. And, and where do you live? I live in Midville, Idaho, which is southwest Idaho. Okay, and uh, I guess that's ranching uh, country out there? Yeah, mostly all hay and cattle. So. And, and you grew up there and lived there now? No, no. I, I bounced around for years. Um, yeah, I live in Montana, live in California, Texas. I've kind of been all over. So, but yeah, we've been in been in Idaho for 17 years. Well, since '06. So, very good. Uh, uh, what made you want to start engraving? Uh, I actually had pretty low expectations of, for the engraving. Yeah, I was building saddle. Well, I shot horses for uh, 10, 12 years, and was kind of boot bootstrapping my saddle business and. Uh, about all I wanted to do was cut some conchos and for my saddle work, and yeah, then you get on a uh, get on a rabbit trail and, and look where you end up, you know. Yeah, you never can so, tell how it would work out. Yeah, yeah. So when you started out engraving, what sort of things were you working on? When I first started engraving, it was all saddle silver. What the problem was, I was having trouble sourcing saddle silver because silversmiths are just like engravers and saddle makers and all artisans, uh, you know, trying to schedule and get things on time is difficult. So I decided to bring that in-house and do it myself. And so, yeah, I was doing like just conchos, candlebacks, you know, maybe solder a brand on something. Just super simple stuff. So. And is all this stuff that's available these days? It seems like every every couple of weeks something else new comes into the market, and and you know, uh, just the way things are done changes a little bit. Well, like in the saddle business, everything's very very traditional. You know, we you can look at saddles that were built you know 100 years ago, and most everything's pretty similar today. You know, a few design changes, but um, no, it's concho is a concho, whether it was done now or you know back when Vice Elliott was doing conchos. Okay so when when you started out when you decided that you were going to start engraving uh, what resources were you able to turn to? Was the internet around yet or 
Well, yeah, I didn't start engraving until 05, so yeah, we had internet, and really, you know how it really started out was, I, there was a local guy that was a silversmith, and he said that he was going to help, or, you know, offered to help, and even though I engrave for a living, I'm kind of an impatient person, and um, I could see that it was going to take take a little longer to get where I needed to be because like I say I was just wanting to uh, cut conchos and I just wanted to get up and get something done and so that was going to be you know several years he was wanting to teach hand push and all this stuff and but he did let slip that there was a machine made by GRS that was pneumatic and would speed up the learning curve so that put me on the trail to GRS and so yeah I took a basic class with GRS and oh, that really? got me started who yeah. was your instructor actually it was Rex Peterson oh me too and I credit uh, well I'll just say that I didn't know the difference between bright cut and and like firearms engraving so uh, I went to the class and I didn't know anything so yeah what I was seeing what Rex was teaching I was like well this this is not really applicable to what I want to do but luckily Diane Scowls was right next door so I went over there for about 10 minutes and she kind of gave me kind of the rundown on how to do things and but then she was like, well, if you want to know more, you got to take the class. <laughs> so. that, that's actually the exact same setup as when I went to GRS. We only got about 10 or 30 minutes with, with Diane, but it yeah. was it was eye-opening. Because, oh, yeah. because, like you said, when you start doing this, you don't have the sophistication to really know what you're looking at yet, and you don't understand how one thing applies to the next, yeah. right? Yeah. So, uh, Okay, so you get your start, and uh, you go out to GRS, and you come back, and then what are you working on? Oh, just anything, you know. I had to start. I had to kind of learn some silversmithing skills in order to build what I want. And I mean, just real rudimentary, you know, just soldering on like brands and you know edge borders and just super. So basically, I was just in the evening after I'd get done in the shop or the saddle shop. You know, I'd shoe horse in the morning, go to the saddle shop in the afternoon, and then in the evening I'd come in. And I had had my little silver set up, so yeah, I'd just roll in there and you know solder a bunch of stuff together, and then then bright cut it, and uh, yeah, just basically getting in a lot of mileage, you know. Uh, and as like anything, you do it enough, you'll start getting seeing some improvement, get better at it, you know. So. You have a um, a very fine and and well, I should say refined style. Uh, how long did it take before your your style really? really developed to where it is today oh immediately immediately no <laughs> uh no really it's just an evolution you know uh you just as as i like i said well one thing i will say is i did study down with sam alfano uh at his private studio in louisiana and that was spring of 06 so right there i got the foundation of you know kind of a finer you know bright cuts real heavy and real bold and whereas I saw a lot of the finer work that the Italians were doing and the you know coming out of Europe and all that and I was like wow that that's really inspiring and so I was like well where are you going to go to do that and you know Sam's well known in the knife industry and doing you know outstanding work obviously and so I was like well that's a guy I really want to get get in with and or go go study with you know and so I contacted him just out of the blue and he's like yeah sure you know I do do private lessons and we kind of went through it and I was like all right well that's 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 kind of a jump 
you know, being able to go one-on-one, I handed him a list of everything that I wanted to uh, learn. And, uh, yeah, we just, through the week, we just went right down through the list. And, and so when I left out of there, I had, I had the foundation to go whatever direction I wanted to go. You know? What do you think was the most important lesson you learned early on? I would say that getting the information you needed without getting too much and then going and getting some mileage put on it. Uh, you know, like when I took Rex's class, it was a perfect class, even though like I say, sometimes I can be a little impatient and I just want more and more and more information. If you do that, you can get overloaded too early. And so it's like information overload, I guess they call it. So like Rex, it was, it was, it was perfect because you learn, I learned what the tools did how to cut a line, how to, or, you know, how to sharpen tools, how to cut a line, you know, maybe remove some background, uh, and some, or a simple, real, real simple scroll style. And then it was like, go home, you know, and then you get, you, you just get in there and put hours and hours and hours in, and then, you, you know, you're using that information, but then after you've done that, then you can get a little more information and build, you know, it's just building yeah, I, I took the same class at GRS, and I was really impressed at how you go in so green on Monday, and by Friday, you're at least able to produce in green. I would say by Wednesday, we could have probably went home, you know, because it just, it's so, it's very, very basic, and he puts it very clearly to you, so at least in, in my own mind, when when I left out of there, I mean, there was no, no, I, I didn't really have any questions to what I needed to do, or, you know, I guess best way to put it is it's kind of the veil was lifted off of so much that you had a, had a pretty strong grasp of what you wanted to do and therefore you could go home and just get some mileage in and do something you know what was it like uh, starting out to build your clientele i know you were a saddle maker and a, and a farrier uh did is that where you drew your um, your jobs from uh yeah i would say early on you know guys that knew me from the saddle industry they you know they'd come in and they'd order more silver like they'd order a pair of spur leathers and well you can do the silver so yeah give me i'd like you know a pair of silver buckles or some conchos on there you know um or and then christmas time and roll around oh you know could you make a bracelet for my wife or a hair bread or you know a little bit of jewelry and i i didn't really care for doing the jewelry but hey you know when you're bootstrapping one thing to another you'll take anything you know you'll do whatever you need to to make some money so uh, that's kind of how that that did you started. find yourself getting in over your head early on oh everybody yeah that's that's <laughs> a given you, yeah somebody's gonna order something and now you're like okay sure and then you gotta figure out how to do it you know well so, luckily yeah. the internet was around you know a lot of the the uh, older engravers i talked to they all they had were, were books and the telephone and so very difficult. Yeah. Um, little known fact about Brian Hawkshite engraving is that Brian Hawkshite was a failed engraver. Uh, yeah. Back back when I was in high school, I was building some spurs and things, you know, because I was rodeoing and uh, zero money. So, uh, you know, I built my own spurs and things like that. And so I was like, oh, I'll, I'll dress them up, you know. And so my uh, stepdad, Jim, his, da- his dad was actually kind of like a book collector of uh, European engraving and um, he really liked engraving and didn't really I didn't really know him very well, he lived a little ways away but anyway, one one year for Christmas he bought me some engraving tools and the Meek book 
Yeah, the the Meek book is a great resource if you already understand how to engrave, or this is my, my experience with it. So, yeah, I, I tried to learn to engrave through that book, and, you know, this is a high school, so, yeah, that's kind of pre-internet, just as, or we didn't have the internet anyway. And so, anyways, I tried and tried, and, you know, six months, and I just had a farm shop to work with, so that was kind of a handicap as well, but... Um, but yeah, so I gave up, started building saddles, and I didn't revisit it until you know 2005. But but anyway, that's my story of so, failure. <laughs> well, well, I don't know. As long as you keep going, it's not a failure, is it? Yeah, I guess not. And I mean, like I said earlier, folks, if you haven't seen this guy's work, please do yourself a favor and, and seek it out because it's totally great. Um, I I know you went and took a class with Sam. What? Uh, what uh, what engravers did you look up to when you started out? Well, obviously initially Sam, but then then with the internet, you know, there are so many you know so many photos out there to to see that you pick up on all these guys, you know, like Ken Hunt and Phil Coggin. I don't know if that's how you pronounce the last name. I've heard it pronounced a lot of different ways, but I think it's Coggin. Um, obviously, Lane Lovenberg. Uh, you know, just for Cossie, you know, I was really... And like everybody, you get a mis- misconception of what some of this stuff is through photos, and I couldn't figure out how Fricasi was getting these just brilliant scenes, and, well, then... Of course, then you you see them in real life, and you're like, oh, you know, it's it's a lot of it's lighting, you know, and, and that's probably true with my work too. Everybody sees them, the photograph, and they're like, wow, that's you know, really really bold. And though I do try to make sure it is bold in the in every lighting situation, you know, it's just impossible. It's engraving, you know, it's impossible. You do the best you can, but um, so. I was kind of judging my work against the photographs of what I've seen from other people, and you know, so has been maybe a little too hard on myself sometimes. But um, but yeah, no, certainly influenced by the the you know the, the top European engravers, and and that's you can probably see some of that in my work. So what else do we need to talk about from the past? One one thing that probably is important is that in 06 I moved to Idaho and my career had to change because horseshoeing in Idaho is much different than it is in California. Um, for one, the weather in California, you can shoe year-round, though it does slow down in the wintertime, but when I moved to Idaho, the dynamic is different and making a living full-time in my area was impossible so I had to find a new revenue source and the saddles I never felt that the saddle business was stable enough that I wanted to put all my eggs in that basket so though I I kept my saddle shop going uh, I transitioned to the engraving because it was more steady it seemed like people caught and on to my work pretty quickly and I could continue I always had orders. I've never, I've never had more than maybe a couple weeks, and that's only happened like once or twice where I, and that was a scheduling error on my part. But I've never had like dead time in the engraving studio. You know, it's I've always have had people for whatever reason call and want something. You know, even like I'm look, you know, early on, you're not scheduled out as far. And I'd be like, oh, what am you know? What am I going to do for a living in three months? Well, somebody will call, you know. And so, 
I, you, you used, I used to get kind of nervous about that early on, but then, you know, after it's like, oh, somebody always calls with something. So you, you kind of learned to, it, but that's just business on your own. You know, that's just being being self-employed. You know, it doesn't matter what, what industry you're in. It's funny that you said nervous about it because you don't strike me as a very nervous person. You seem pretty like a pretty cool customer. <laughs> well... Yeah, like everybody, you know, you got bills to pay, and the wolf always seems like he's at the door. So <laughs> certainly. Yeah. So, uh, so you start out in 2005, and a couple of years later, your style is developing. Yeah. And uh, what would you say is your overarching uh, ethos, idea for the type of work that you do? What are, What are you trying to accomplish with your work? Well, I go through phases. Uh, Basically, what it seems, and this is not by design, it just kind of happens, uh, or not intentional, it just kind of happens, is that I'll get on kind of a kick on, you know, early on I was really interested in Bellino, or what they call Bellino, it's actually Puntini, but we'll split hairs on that. Uh, so doing, I was really interested in that, so pretty much everything I was doing, you know, was, you know, dot shaded as far as the scenes and things. And then, you know, I got on the track of the colored gold inlay work and, you know, I was doing a lot of that. And so, and then you'll trans, I'll transition to, you know, uh, trying to up my, you know, my development on, you know, just studying composition and anatomy. And so you just kind of target your jobs to what you're wanting to strengthen in your, you know, strengthen your weaknesses so that you can be, uh, just continue to improve as an engraver. I see. And um, I don't know your personal business, but uh, I assume that you're a master engraver in FIGA? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I guess technically, yeah, I am a FIGA master, um, but I will stipulate, I do not call, refer to myself as a master engraver. Uh, I don't feel that, you know, I'm obviously, uh, I'm pretty strong in a lot of areas as far as my engraving is concerned, but when I, when I think of master, you know, I think of Lovenberg, Fricasse, Ken Hunt, you know, the, I feel those guys took it to a level beyond the mo most, most engravers, so I don't feel I'm worthy to be in their category. You know, hopefully someday, you know, I'll have it locked in, but until then, you know. Did you ever get to meet any of those engravers? Uh, I met, I met Fricasse. I went to Italy um, for a show. I think it was 2014 or 15. Yeah, I, I met uh, Fermo and Francesca and uh, was a, you know, got, got to hang out at the show with them a little bit. Um, you know, obviously he's everybody that's ever said it, you know, talk to Firmo, he's a super nice guy, you know, and just, he was very, very uh, positive about my work and what I was doing, and um, yeah, just, it, it was a good interaction, you know, um, but as far as, uh, oh, Lovenberg, you know, I met him early on, uh, like my, when we were back at the Silver Legacy, the early shows of Fega, uh, Elaine would come by my table and you know, check out what I was doing, and always very, very positive. And um, so, you know, that that was that was pretty neat being being as new and young as I was to have a guy of his level come over and you know, kind of give you the give you the thumbs up. You know, like you're on the right path. Just keep going. You know. So. Yeah, it's it's very it's uh, of course I I got started a lot later than you, but 
even I have overlapped with all these great engravers. Mm-hmm. You know, the people who who laid down what we're looking at today. Yeah. And, you know, they're they're going to pass on eventually and we're going to pick up and then someday we will overlap with other people. And I, I like that part of being in this guild where, or you know, and, and worldwide engravers as well. Uh, we're part of a legacy here and I think it's kind of neat. It is. You know, the, that's the cool thing about the guild is it puts you in contact with people you would never Never. So it brings everybody together, and so you you get to meet people that you would pro- probably never see. You know, that's that's the one thing about our industry is we're all kind of in our own little studios doing our own thing, and it's difficult to get everybody together into one spot. So that's why the these shows are important, is so that we we can actually get out and see see each other, and you know, uh, kind of reconnect and see what other guys are doing, and uh, just see you know, just it's kind. I think that's a big component of the show is just... Last night at the uh, the penthouse party here in Vegas, uh, I heard someone say that the penthouse party is the internet for these old guys because you know, okay. this is how they connect. Yeah. After, you know, they're gone for a year and they come back and they connect every year. Yep. Yep. And I think that's really cool. Uh, of course, I had the internet internet and I, I don't know that I switched out, but anyways... Uh, nevertheless, I wanted to uh, talk to you about, uh, yesterday I spoke to you a little bit about uh, your animal scenes. Mm-hmm. And uh, have you always had a love for animals? I, I know the work that you do on them is, is uh, very lovingly done and very uh, precisely done. Yeah, I, I would say animals, there again, it goes in phases. I used, I used to not do a lot of animals. Uh, you know, one one phase of my career, and guys that the older guys that have kind of followed what I've done have seen. You know, I used to do a lot of girly knives, and the reason I did that was because I just had to become a better artist. And there's no more difficult subject matter than a, a girl. And if you can get that locked in, and because the you have to have your values right, and all, all, everything has to be right, or it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't work. I think I understand that. Um, could we get into some of the technicalities of how you do your puntini? Uh, you push your graver in the metal and pop out a little dot. <laughs> there's, no. there's not. There's I'm no magic. There's no magic there, to it, is there? Actually, you know, that's. It's a skill that I don't think most people. I, or at least speaking in, for myself, I did not realize how long it takes to develop that skill where you can do it quickly, accurately, and uh, and all day for every day for may, maybe weeks or months on end. Um, again, I'm kind of an impatient person, so it, it I'll just say this, it probably was five years before, and engraving a lot, you know, I used to engrave 10, 15 hours a day because I didn't have kids or any of that at the time. So um, I could put in as much time as I needed to get a job done. And so doing, spending a lot of hours at it, uh, it still took me five years before I could, I could drop my graver in and then bang, 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 hit a row of dots and have them act no burrs, accurately placed, evenly spaced, and the right size and do that consistently over and over and over again throughout an entire section of where I'm where I'm working. 
because even though you know we're working on a microscopic level, if you bunch three dots together, when you hold it out away from you at the viewing, viewing distance, that turns into a black spot. And so you have to be super consistent. And then if, you're, if you don't have your graver sharpened properly, or you're not getting your, your chip popped out, if you're getting all those little burrs, you're going to change how the light hits it and your engraving's rough, and you can't be going back and popping out thousands of little burrs. I mean, it has, in order to be efficient at it, you have to be able to go in there, you know, like say, bang, bang, get them all out first time. and First time, every time. Every time, One yeah, million exactly. times or two Exa- million times. Exactly. You and know, I'm so. surprised to hear that uh, I didn't, I didn't, would not have thought that you are popping burrs out. I, I I push all mine, but where they're just a, a little diamond shape. I didn't realize that you were pulling a chip out. Yep, yep. Uh, push it in, pop out a little. I mean, it's microscopic. You know, it is. It's a. It's a little diamond. But my engraving or my puntini, bellino, whatever the term you want to use, when I'm done with it, it is perfectly smooth. And the reason for that is that most everything I do gets inked, or everything I do gets inked, because if you don't ink it, it, when you get in poor light, it'll look like it's bead blasted. You know, you, that, and that's that's one thing that people are surprised at when, or at least I was surprised at when I saw the Italian masters what they were doing. You see the, those bold images when you go to the show and you see that gun and shows her oh, or seldom have very good lighting and you can walk by it and it just looks like it was just blasted or something and it's not until you can get a good look at it that you're like wow look you know look what they did but and so I have always been a strong proponent of ink in my work so that everybody can see it and used to be a little bit of kind of a taboo it seemed in the gun industry because early on like some of the guns I was doing that guys didn't want me to ink them and I'm like yeah but the work will look so much better if you can see it you know and so I think that's that's kind of past now I think everybody's pretty well on board with ink in the work. Do you ever work your uh, design down with lines first? No. Okay. Um, no everything even like when when I'm laying out my uh, say I'm laying out a scene and say it has whatever animal, uh, even the envelope that I put down first, it's all dots. I don't, I don't hard line anything. It, now, obviously, I'm going to use hard lines where they need to be because you're going to have hard edges in your scene, but uh, that comes later. You know, I want to always keep my option open. Is this soft edge, lost edge, hard edge, whatever I'm doing? Uh, so. In its final form now, do you feel like there's still some evolution to come, or, or you, do you like where you're at? Oh, totally. No, there's, it'll never stop evolving. Uh, you know, if you look at the work that I was doing 10 years ago, it was pretty strong. Uh, but you compare it, or at least when I compare it to what I can do now, uh, yeah, it's not there. And, you know, as the relationship goes. Now, I never look back at the work that I've done, and... I'm always critical of it, but I don't beat myself up over it because every job that I, t- I do, I do it until, or I, I do the best I can do. Uh, so I'm never hard on myself for my failure. What I view is, you know, something as a failure. I, 
I'll critique them and be like, ah, you know, I'll see a knife come up on, on the secondary market and be like, oh, that girl does not look that good. But I, you know, I did the best I could. That was the best I could do at the level that I was at. And so I, I never beat myself up over that. But every job, I'll look at it, I'll critique it. And whether I, I just finished it yesterday or 10 years ago, um, I'll look at it, see what it needs to be improved. Don't make that mistake again and go on to the next job. Don't. I, I never uh, commiserate over anything that didn't go right. It's just like, okay, yeah, you learned something, move on, don't do it again. It's interesting you just said that because I'm realizing that uh, work that I did two weeks ago, I can't handle it. It's, it's, there's always something there, and it irritates me because it's so fresh. But if I look at something from two years ago, I'm able to look back at it, and I've got a little bit of uh, understanding for who I was at that point. Correct. Right. And, and, and like you said, it's that was the best I could do at that time, and it's part of growing as an artist. And so I, I was really glad to hear that you feel the same way about it, and it makes me feel better as a person. Yeah, you know, and that's why, again, back to the whole master thing, I don't, I would never consider myself, or at this point, I certainly don't consider myself a master because even though your evolution does start to slow as you progress, you know, think about the evolution of somebody, a complete green pea to two weeks after a class, you know, it's a huge night and day difference from knowing nothing to be able to, you know, kind of scroll and do some, some, some decent things. Uh, then you go two years out, then 10 years out, than 20 years out, uh, you know, the progression's going to slow, but uh, you, as long as you're trying to, and it, when, when you get further in your career, you kind of have to self-educate. There, You know, it's, it's tougher. You've gone down your own path. You've created your own style. Uh, you you got to just continue searching out resources, but you, it's very difficult. You can't go to a, another engraver and get much information out of him because for one, he's got his own ways of doing things that don't match up with the way you do things. So you got to kind of self-educate to continue your progression. And cert certainly being realistic with what you're looking at uh, of your own work. You know, you want to see your work be really good, but sometimes it's not. And you got to be honest with yourself. When you look at it and you're like, you know, this... I could have done better here. You know, you can't let your ego get in the way as well. I'm, I'm this or I'm that. You, you know, you got to stay humble and be like, hey, I can do better. That's, that's think, not as good as you can do. I think a lot of people, either they, they, you know, people come into this job from different backgrounds, whether it's engineering or there, I bet three aerospace engineers here today. Right, yeah. And so, when you're moving into the field of art, you you may not understand the being honest with yourself about. What you're, what's in your mind and what you're putting on the paper. Sure. And I think that's, a, I think that holds back a lot of people, and uh, and I think that's kind of what you're talking about too. Yeah. Well, I'm just a horseshoer. So. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. As far as, as far as keeping my ego in check, that's uh, usually pretty easy, you know, because I, I didn't, I, I come from certainly a, a labor working class background, so that's, you know, no, no highfalutin art stuff. Well, uh, you, you wouldn't know it by looking at your work, certainly. Um, what, uh, either in your field of work or in your personal life, what, what are you most, uh, what have you been most proud of? What, what, is there anything that stands out in your mind? Uh, I would say, kind of from a 30,000-foot perspective, I would say that I went from 
a complete green pea in 2005 to engraving full time in in 2008 and have been able to maintain that to the present and though I have had you know I used used to take on a few shoeing jobs here and there to supplement but primarily I have been able to go from zero to where I'm at now and um, be a success you know that's or what my version of success and you're you're enjoying what you're doing yeah you know that's one thing that is it's a job you know, don't don't let anybody tell you, you that it's it's all cream and roses. I mean, it's or whatever the saying is. No, cream but, and roses is the saying. <laughs> okay. that, that's it. That's the new one. If it's not, <laughs> we'll make it one. <clears throat> but yeah, you know, I never I never have a problem getting to the bench. I love you know I like what I do, and if if uh, I didn't want to do the job, I shouldn't have took it. And so, you know, I'm excited to do every project, but, you know, like on a lot of my jobs, they, they run, you know, eight, nine, ten months. And man, you are ready for that thing to be out the door by that time. You know, the fun is over, you know, last month or two of that is like, man, I want to get this done. You still got to, but you still have to maintain, you can't get in a hurry. You know, it's going to take what it takes and you just got to have the mindset that you're going to go in there and get it done and uh, the highest level you can. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like running a marathon a lot of times is you got to get the small wins, you know, every step of the way, you know, uh, to keep yourself going. So are there any, um, are there any dream jobs that you haven't gotten to do yet? Oh, there's a lot of stuff I'd like to do, and but they're coming down the pipe. Yeah, uh, you know it's as with everything, there's it's an evolution, and the guns I'm getting are, now are better than I shouldn't say better, but maybe more prestigious would be the more precise word. But uh, than I was getting early on, and they just keep stepping up, and I got some things, and I can't really talk about it right now. But in years to come, you're going to start seeing my work on more and more prestigious prestigious guns. Well, I look so. forward to that. That's, yeah. That sounds like a good teaser. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there wasn't, but I have to ask you anyway, as a matter of course. Uh, was there ever a time that something you were working on did not work out? Oh, that happens a lot. You know, it's not so much in the engraving. And there again, you can go back and critique, you know, your engraving and you can take that as, oh, this didn't work out as good as it should have or whatever. But from a technical aspect, yeah, I've had a lot of a lot of things happen. You know, I do do my own bluing and uh, hot bluing and on on a lot of the rifles that I do now are the, are the ones that get that actual finish. And it just makes it easier because I got post-finish work to do on the engraving after after the bluing so I can just do it in-house. And man, when I was first trying to learn to do that, I had so many things. Or I shouldn't say so many. I had three or four jobs that the bluing just... I couldn't get it right, and because temperature is super critical, and you have to have your mix just right, and there's all these little technical things, and so yeah, it took a little bit to get it worked out, and but now it's you know now I, I'm pretty confident at it. So and then other little things, oh like one one deal I had, so I built a pair of spurs. I used to be a member of the TCA Traditional Cowboy Arts Association. I was a member there for a, for a short time, and I bu- I built a pair of spurs. And so they were going to be niter blued. So I dip them in there, and I see a little bubble pop up from 
from the bottom and I didn't think nothing of it and I pull them out and I'm not sure how my blowing salts got contaminated uh, won't even speculate but they did and there was a piece of lead solder attached to a silver inlay that I had done and at that temperature it had actually burned out the uh, part of the silver inlay well, the kicker of it was the next morning I was getting on a plane to go to Arizona to show the Spurs. <laughs> and so, anyway. Now that that now that is a that's the kind of story we're looking for here. Yeah, so. yeah. And that and and mind you, this was seven o'clock at night because you know you, <laughs> you you never you never uh, you know uh, wait until nothing ever gets done until you till the last minute. So yeah, I'm finishing these things. Uh, it, so anyway, all I could do was uh, I, I, I couldn't, Niter Blue is pretty delicate, so all I could do was I took some really small stones, stoned off the, the solder and inlaid kind of more burnished in a piece of silver there. And it, it was a pretty good fix uh, for the time, but well, yeah, when I got home, I, I stripped the blue, re-inlaid that piece and uh, re-blued them. But, uh, so yeah, it worked out. Well, that's, that is actually the perfect story because it not only talks about a failure, but it also talks about how you got past it. So, yeah, yeah. And uh, I just want everybody out there to know it happens to the best of us. So, uh, and actually, in some ways, I think learning how to fix your engraving is or mistakes is more important than learning how to engrave it in the first place. So. Well, you're always going to have things pop up, and yeah, you 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 can't be. I mean, you you. It's difficult when that stuff happens, but you can't you can't be just devastated over it. You just you get over it. You're like, okay, take a deep breath. All right, let's fix it. You know, let's move on. So very good. Just, well, I won't keep you much longer. Like yeah, yeah. everybody can hear in the background, the show is going on, and I appreciate your time. Um, do you have any words of advice for someone who's starting out to today to become an engraver? I would say. The best thing you can do early on is get your foundation under you as far as education. Uh, you know, take a class, at least, you know, take your basic class, but then take that information and get some mileage on. You know, you're, we're quote unquote information age now, but you can really overload yourself with information and knowing all. Knowing about how to do something is much different than being able to, to execute that. So I would say, you know, get get you some get you the the knowledge you need, but um, stop and get in get in there in front in your bench on your bench and you know get something get some hours in before you you decide to move on to the next step. And and in engraving, there's so many different steps to so many different directions you can go. You know that 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 could be whatever it is, but. And you might get on a rabbit trail, and who knows where it'll lead you, you know. Very so. good. That's sound advice from Mr. Brian Hockstrat. I really do appreciate your time, and you got to get back over to your table and sell yeah. out for today, and yeah, yeah. Well, you'll be all good. Thank yeah. you very much right. for your time. Very good. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Well, that's it for the show. Thank you for your patience. I know it was a long time between episodes, but now we are back, and I have a series of shows for you that I know you're going to enjoy. 
As always, the show's music is by Mr. Marius Mellaby. Thank you, Marius. Thank you to Brian Hockstrat for his time. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next time.